Hey, did you know Amazon had a website for black businesses? That's right, blackownedamazon.com. If you're black, show you're black. Shop black. Every single product on blackownedamazon.com is from a black-owned business. And not only that, when you buy from blackownedamazon.com, Amazon will donate a portion of your total purchase to assist new black-owned businesses. So if you're black, show you're black. Shop black. Blackownedamazon.com. Be sure to bookmark this website so that you never forget to shop at blackownedamazon.com. Mind manipulation and the battle for the Bible. As I was sitting in the Newark airport on yesterday, that, that, that subject just dropped into my spirit. Mind manipulation and the battle for the Bible. When it comes to the science of manipulating the mind. No one has surpassed the skill, the stratagems, the agendas, and the goals of the Euro-Gentile powers that have been and still are today. I'm talking about a people who literally have what we call social scientists, social engineers that work full time for companies like the CIA, National Security Agency, the NSA, and various other government entities and their entire job responsibility is to sit back and develop strategies and implement programs in society to manipulate the minds of the masses. The major idiom that is used to manipulate the mind of the masses is something called history. His story. Napoleon Bonaparte asked the question one day, what is history? And then he turned right around and answered his question. He said, what is history but a fiction agreed upon. Another word for fiction would be a lie. Agreed upon. How many, how many of you have ever heard of Winston Churchill? Former Prime Minister of Great Britain. Winston Churchill said these words, and I quote him. He said, history is going to be kind to Great Britain because I'm going to write it. 
Ain't that deep? History is going to be kind to Great Britain because I'm going to write it. We must always remember that history was written by some very powerful people who have as their agenda the advancement of themselves and not others. The miseducation of the Negro by Carter G. Woodson is one of the most significant works ever published. In this awesome work, Carter G. Woodson says these words, and I quote him, every man has two educations. That's what he said. That which is given to him and that which he gives to himself. He goes on to say, of the two kinds, the latter is far more desirable. Indeed, all that is worthy in man, he must work out and conquer for himself, he says. He says, it is that which constitutes our real and best nourishment. What we are merely taught, I repeat, what we are merely taught seldom nourishes the mind like that which we teach ourselves. If you would be honest, brothers and sisters, and sit back and just analyze everything you think you know, you would have to admit that over 85% of what you know is what somebody taught you. What's really amazing to me is how we come to the defense of what somebody said is instead of what we know to be for ourselves. We live in a world where we are constantly bombarded with information. Oh yeah. Now how that information is presented to us, the accuracy of that information and how it's perceived is literally what determines our perception of reality. Therefore we must learn to develop what I refer to as critical thinking skills. Look at the person next to you and say, learn how to think. Adolf Hitler once said these words, what luck for leaders that people don't think. Ain't that deep? What luck for leaders that people don't think. You see, brothers and sisters, when you have a better grasp of how to think, you will enhance your own capacity to assume greater control over your life. When you develop critical thinking skills, your mind will not be so easily manipulated. The reason why most of us 
experienced intellectual manipulation and psychological and emotional control by exterior forces and by other people is because we have not developed within ourselves the habit of critical thinking. Especially when it comes to church. Nobody controls the mind processes among black folk like the preacher does. And as a result of misinformed, miseducated, misdirected preachers in the pulpit, we as a people are spiritually messed up. Oh yes we are. When you get to the place where you don't take all information literally, you will know how to read between the lines for deeper understanding and to evaluate whatever information is presented to you. Look at the person next to you and say, don't ever stop using your intellectual vigilance. God gave you a mind. Never, ever let your mind be at ease when it comes to what your ears are hearing. One of the ways that, now I, I'm going to throw this at y'all, see how you grab this. One of the reasons why it's so important for us to try to get a good night's rest is because a lot of times we sit in a so-called learning environment and we're tired. And what happens when you're in a learning environment and you're tired, you're start, you start to drift. You know, you, you sit in, and your mind does not remain as keen and as sharp. And you'll be surprised, brothers and sisters, how much the mind digests at that state than when you're alert. And it filters into your subconscious mind. That's one of the reasons why, some, I don't know how many of you ever uh, fell asleep while watching television or listening to the radio. And what's deep is as you begin to do that, you have dreams about what you're hearing on television. You actually feel, experience yourself in the episode itself. Because your mind is digesting what's going on. Even though you are not, you don't think you're intellectually processing it, you're subconsciously absorbing it. Never allow your mind to become defenseless. You need to learn how to exercise intellectual self-defense. Keep your mind clear. The minds of our people, brothers and sisters, have been manipulated into what I refer to as a paralysis of analysis. When it comes to right knowledge. Isn't that deep? We don't exercise a paralysis of analysis when it comes to the lie that has been fed to us. We don't exercise a paralysis of analysis when it comes to uh, the things that we were taught that God said and God did not say it. 
We don't exercise a paralysis of analysis at that point. But in the things that we should exercise a paralysis, uh, not exercise a paralysis of analysis, we do it. We let our mind just go to sleep. We don't analyze. We don't tear it apart. We don't break it down. And then people got the unmitigated audacity to come challenge you and say, well, how do you know that's true? Isn't that something? We want to get a paralysis of analysis when the truth comes along. But we didn't exercise it when we were eating the lie. We need to examine those things that are designed to keep us enslaved. We need to examine those things that are designed to keep us oppressed. We have failed, brothers and sisters. i got to be honest with you. I did, you did. We have failed to challenge the belief systems and the patterns of thought that control us. Instead, instead of challenging it, we are willing to defend it with our very lives. We're willing to protect the beliefs of our oppressor with our dying breath, even against our own flesh and blood. Think about that. That's the tragedy. You oftentimes hear him in Tuatep how say how his mother when he explained to his mother that you know he ain't into the Jesus thing no more. His mother, the woman whose womb he came out of, said, You gotta get up, you gotta get out of here. How many of you have experienced negative retaliation from your loved ones because you no longer hold to the belief system not that they gave you but that the oppressor gave both of y'all when it comes to the biblical text the minds of our people have been manipulated to the point to where as there is an automatic built in self defense mechanism However, thank God, thank the ancestors, there is an awakening taking place. There is a stirring and arousing within the minds of many of our people today. The message of the African origins of Western philosophical and religious thought is bombarding its way into our homes, into our automobiles, into our computer terminals. Thank God. Africans whose spirit has reached out into the cosmos. I don't know if it's the spirit of our ancestors and even some of our spirits who are still alive and walking around but just reaching out into the universe saying, God, come see about us. And God is a prayer answering God. Yeah, there's a song that said, my mother prayed for me. She had me.
be on her mind. She took the time to pray for me. I'm so glad she prayed. Now you know what's really deep about that? God knows how to answer our prayers. Even if we don't know how to say it the way it ought to be said. That's what I like about God, y'all. Our parents prayed for us. Our parents in their own sincere and even sometimes ignorant way said, Lord, help my children. And God has sent this time of awakening for African people in response to the prayers of our ancestors. Ooh, Lord have mercy. Black Africans throughout the diaspora are saying, and I quote, I've been told all my life that the Bible is the word of God. And that Jesus died for my sins. But these same Africans are now saying, but now I'm hearing that the Bible was derived from ancient writings from ancient Egypt. These same Africans are now saying, I'm finding out through my own research that this story of Mary and Jesus was stolen from ancient Egypt from Aset and Heru or Isis and Horus. Here's the thing though. It goes on, they go on to say, what and whom am I to believe? That's where many of our people are right now. What and whom am I to believe? You see, y'all, a new conflict is raging. Mm, I know that's right. In the world of black Africans today, the battle for the Bible is in full force. This war is greater than the war in Iraq. This war is even more dangerous than the war in Iraq. This war is so serious because if the Bible loses its grasp on the minds of African people, this world will turn upside down. You see, they are very serious, y'all, with their crusade programs. Their crusades have always been either accept this program of religion or die. Well, that's pretty much what's going on now. That's what the war against Muslims are all about. That's what it's all about, y'all. That's why the white man is fighting Muslims and Islam. Because it's important that their Bible remains the vehicle of control. There are a lot of arguments going on now, even among biblical scholars. Arguments over the original inspiration, over the Greek texts, over the English translations. And amid the 
the confusion of theological word battles and personal scruples, many people are crying for answers today because the lies that were fed to them in the first place no longer hold water. Now here's what it boils down to. The question that I am, I'm asked a lot, and this is what it boils down to, is people want to know, can I get hold of God's pure word? That's what folk are messed up at. Now let me explain to you this predicament here. There was a time when our people didn't have to resort to a book to find out what God's directive was about a certain issue. But we have become so Europeanized. The white man has made a list a code, a standard of do's and don'ts. And many people feel that the more points in this code that they comply with, the more godly they are. Y'all follow what I'm saying? That is not the African way, brothers and sisters. So now that Africans are finding out that the Bible is not what they thought it was. I better repeat that. Africans are finding out that the Bible is not what they thought it was. They're finding out that the Bible is not authoritative. They're finding out that the Bible is not canonical. They're finding out that the Bible is not inerrant. They're finding out that the Bible is not inspired by God. They're finding out that the Bible is not a unique book. They're finding out through their own research that the Bible is, in fact, a literary collection of information that was stolen, copied, plagiarized, represented under a European identity back to black people. Gotta tell it like it is. So now they're at the point of saying, well, and see this is some deep stuff because once a person has believed something, for so long. And then you reach and snatch what they have been standing on out from under them. The only recourse they have is, well, where do I turn? What do I now read? How can I know for myself the mind of God? Look at the person next to you and say, African. Now, I hope nobody got offended by that. If you got offended, look back at him and say it again. African. It's sinking in now. 
I'm reminding you of where you came from. Don't get offended because when you get offended, you embarrass your great-grandmama. You insult your great-great-granddaddy who really suffered and died so you can have a right to life. You need to understand, look back at him and say, African, you need to return to who you really are. Now let me explain what I'm saying, people. If you notice, when we were young children, we were more in tune with the things of God. The older we got, the more educated we became, the more indoctrinated we became, the further away we got from true spirituality. Everything had to end in ology. Y'all follow what I'm saying? In other words, you didn't really have an understanding unless you mastered ecclesiology. You weren't really qualified to say that you knew the Bible unless you mastered bibliology, anthropology, soteriology, angelology, eschatology, homardiology, and you have ologyed yourself into foolishness. way of Africans. For you see, brothers and sisters, once you ologize something, if I can make up that word, okay? Once you ologize a thing, that means you have confined it to your mentality. You've confined it to your philosophy. That is not African. What I love about African consciousness is Africans understood that when it comes to me and God you ain't got nothing to do with that when it comes to me and the creator whatever happens between me and God is me and God I don't even have to explain it to you Look at the person next to you and say, Africans didn't understand what God did in the life of other Africans. But they respected what God did in the life of other Africans. We say, where can I get a hold of God's word? If the Bible or the Word of God is not infallible and I find out that it's not truly my source of absolute truth, then what is? I'm glad you're at that point. You see, if you ask yourself that question, that means you're on the right track. That means you've reached a point of understanding that, that the Bible is a book to control you. Let me show you what I'm talking about. In 
the most popular secret societies on this planet, which I won't identify for you here today. Just suffice it to say, a lot of our people are part of it. <laughs> yeah. One of the procedures for going into the higher echelon of that secret society is you are presented with the Bible. Now on the lower levels of this secret society, you have to kiss the Bible. For every degree that you are, you have to kiss the Bible those many times. But to excel into the higher and more secret inner circle of the upper echelon of this secret order, you don't kiss the Bible that's presented to you and you're told to spit on the Bible. Now here's how this goes. The reason why that's done is to see if the student or the initiate is going to see the Bible for what it really is. Those who say, oh no, uh-uh, no, 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 I can't do that. Well, they get a pat on the back and say, good man, good man, you, you're going to be all right. But they never are allowed to ascend any higher because they don't understand one of the most powerful secrets of all to that individual who spits on the Bible they are allowed to ascend into the upper inner circle of this powerful order and the reason why they are allowed to ascend is because by demonstrating their position about the Bible through spitting on the Bible it told those over him that they understand the real agenda behind the biblical text they know they've learned they've gotten enough light if you will to enable them to understand that the Bible is the book of control for the masses when you come to the realization of the truth of their agenda behind this and that's why the battle of the Bible is so strong today everywhere you turn brothers and sisters they're running campaigns everywhere they got major organizations all over the world giving away millions of free Bibles who's paying for that come on y'all who Think about it. Y'all know how much it costs to print stuff up? Who's paying the bill for all these printed Bibles that they're handing out? You can go in any hotel room and open the drawer and there's a Bible placed by the Gideons. Do some homework on the Gideons. If you just research that, you won't read another Bible. Let me, let me move on here. Have you ever wondered what prompted or motivated 
the translation of what is called the King James Version of the Bible. Have you ever read about King James? Now let me explain something to you. If you understood a about Jimmy Stewart. Some of y'all, that's King James in case y'all didn't know it. His name was James Stewart. S-T-U-A-R-T. If, if you understood just a little bit about this man, your own mind would tell you. It would challenge you. Why are you reading the book with his name on it? Why? Why did he need to retranslate Bibles which were already widely accepted by the masses? It's, like, it's not like there weren't any Bibles in existence. So why did King Jimmy need to come out with his own version? of the Bible was the writing and compilation of the King James Version through divine efficacy in other words did God speak to King James and tell him to revise or come out with his own version of the biblical text these are the kind of questions you need to ask yourself or could there have been another agenda behind it? Let's, let's, let's take a look at what's been recorded in history. The authorized version, by the way, y'all, it is called the AV or the authorized version. Now, out of all of the Bibles that have come out since then, his Bible is still called the authorized version. The King James Version of the Bible still holds the number one place of all biblical translations. Why is that? You need to understand. There's a powerful order. Secret order. And all of their com secret communication to each other is taken out of the King James Version of the Bible. If you do away with the King James Version of the Bible, then that powerful secret order, y'all follow what I'm saying? Their mode of communication gets messed up. So the King James Version has to remain in the number one position. Accepting the proposal of the Puritans at the Hampton Court Conference in 1604, Jimmy Stewart, or King James, ordered a new translation to be undertaken. The reason for this was because of the Puritans' discontent over the imposition of the Bishop's Bible. The king at once appointed the translators at Westminster, Cambridge, and Oxford. Now, some deep stuff because we've all been taught, at least those of us who grew up in Sunday school, those of you who went to school, you were taught that the Bible is translated by 40 different authors over a period of 1,600 years. That's not, look at the person next to you and say, that's not true. 
That's not true. Let me tell you what did happen. In the year 1600, King James appointed 40 different so-called scholars to begin work on this new version of the Bible. Not over a period of 1600 years, as we've been taught. The basic text was to be the Bishop's Bible, which, which preceded the King James Version. And it went on to say, as little altered as the truth of the original will permit. And they were to consult Tyndale, which was a previous version, Coverdale, which was a previous version, the Matthews Bible, the Whitchurch, or the what's called the Great Bible, and of course the Geneva Bible. Do y'all hear all these Bibles I'm mentioning? Oh, that's some deep stuff. The great work was published in 1611, and if you look in the beginning of most King James versions of the Bible, you'll see these words in the opening pages, newly translated out of the original tongues, and with the former translations diligently compared and revised by His Majesty's special commandment. Here you have a homosexual, a pervert and he wasn't on the down low either a man who killed his lovers after having sex with them a child molester who is the one who sets his approval on the Bible that many of you carry around today. I hope I ain't hurting you too bad. Look at the person next to you and say, surgery hurts. Okay? Surgery hurts, but it's necessary for healing too. Okay, see there are three ways to get rid of cancer, y'all. Alright? You can cut it out, okay, or burn it out, you follow what I'm saying, or radiate it out, but you've got to get rid of it, and it's going to hurt one way or another. I'm trying to get rid of this cancer out of y'all called Eurocentric thinking. The King James Version of the Bible soon blocked, concealed, and surpassed all of the previous versions of the Bible and remain the single official text of the Church of England until the revised version. It also became generally accepted among the free churches of the day. It's amazing how a mere revision of that which had gone before could totally obliterate the use or existence of a previous work which formerly had worldwide use and acceptance. But that was the power of King James. What power was behind annihilating all other biblical texts and making his number one? Was it providentialism? In other words, was it divine guidance at work? I don't think so. Mm -mm. 
The result of all of the facts mentioned that I said so far is what has been assigned to us as the Word of God. Here you have a collection of writings and you think it's the Word of God. Now let me show you how deep this thing goes as I get ready to close. One of the most painful statements that I ever heard in my life was said to me by a black woman who believes that she cannot bring God an offering. That she cannot come into the presence of God. That God does not accept her sacrifice simply because her nose is flat. Now I'm looking at y'all's faces. Y'all looking at me tomorrow, what? Come on. Well see, when you believe that what King James put together is the word of God, Follow how I'm saying this. When you believe that and then you read in it that you can't come into the presence of God because your nose is flat. What you saying, preacher? What you, wait, what, what you talking about? How many, got your, how many got a Bible? Let me see. You got your Bible with you? Good. Turn to Leviticus. The 21st chapter of Leviticus. The 18th verse. I want you to see right there where it tells you that if you got a flat nose, you can't come into the presence of God. How many of y'all knew that was there? Ah, see, that's what I'm talking about. See, these are the verses that they didn't tell you about. Leviticus, the 21st chapter, verse 18. I don't have my Bible up here, so somebody who can read nice and loud. What, is, what does it say? For whatsoever man he be, that hath a blemish, he shall not come into my presence. Go ahead. A blind man. Wait a minute, a blind man can't come into my presence. A lame man, meaning a crippled man, can't come into my presence. Or he that hath a flat nose. Now let me tell you why they apply that to black people. It's not talking about the bulb of your nose. It's talking about the bridge of the nose. You see, we have a flat bridge up here. We don't have a wall dividing our eyes like the people from the north do. You follow what I'm saying? Our bridge is flat. This is the part of the nose it's referring to. Now there it is. What's deep is when you think that this is what God said because somebody put it there. What do you say to a black man who says that God sent the slave ships to Africa because we were heathens? What do you say to a brother 
who's, who feels that way, who believes that. I said, no, brother, God didn't do that. Yes, he did. You know what he said? He said, the Bible says he did. Y'all don't have to take my word for it. Turn to Ezekiel. 30th chapter of Ezekiel, the ninth verse, tells you there plain as day that God sent the ships into Africa. If you hold this literature to be from God, then you have to accept the white man as your oppressor. Y'all hear what I'm saying? Who got Ezekiel 30 and 9? What does it say? Go ahead. In that day shall messengers go forth from me. In other words, God is sending them out in ships to make the careless Ethiopians afraid. Do y'all see it? I ain't making this up. It's right there in your B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that's the book for me. Mind manipulation. Did God send ships? Did God send the white man in ships? And why did it have to be careless Ethiopians? Why Ethiopians? Because the, the, the zenith of mathematics, horticulture, agriculture, sciences, music, medicine, you name it, came from the Ethiopians. Everything the world knows came from the descendants of Ethiopia. So the only way Africans to disempower you, the only way Africans to make you realize that you are nothing is to show you in the book that you think is God's word. Y'all hearing me? I gotta free your African mind. That's my assignment. I know some of you don't like what I'm saying. I can't help that. I gotta do my job. And my job is to open your blinded eyes and get you out of the very program that's been killing you in the first place. A white man known as Thomas Jefferson. How many of y'all have heard of him before? Former president of the United States. Also an old slave master, child molester. Wasn't nothing great about him in my opinion. But even he found so many errors and alterations in the Bible that the man compiled his own Bible 
It was called the Jefferson Bible. You see, brothers and sisters, this is about controlling you. Everybody say religion, religion. is about control. As I, as I get ready to close, let me, let me tell y'all something. I don't know if you've noticed it or not. But here at the African village, unlike many other so-called, quote, churches, we don't have a doctrinal statement here. If you look in the program, you don't see anything about a doctrinal statement. In other words, there's nothing there that says, we believe da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. You know why? Because that's not African. A doctrinal statement tells you what to think, not how to think. And if you want to be a part of that church or that organization, you have to adopt that doctrinal statement. That's why they got it there. Here at the African village, now I'm saying this as we begin to move to the next level. Here at the African village, brother, and, and Mentuotep touched on it this morning on the radio. There will be times in our experience and in our fellowship, Africans, that the African expression of our spirituality will want to move in you. But we've been so Europeanized that we suppress the expression of what I used to call and still do the African Holy Ghost. Now the reason why I say African Holy Ghost is because not anywhere in my studies or research have I ever read of the Spirit of God moving through a white person. I just haven't read it. I'm not saying God hasn't done it. There's no historical event where you see God's Spirit moving through a white man. Every historical documented event of a major move of God was through a black person. So I so that's my basis for saying the African Holy Ghost. Please understand that. Even the white slave masters when they got when they when they needed some advice, you know what they do? They'd go get the old black slave woman and bring her in in secret and ask her what did she think they ought to do? Because there's something in our black spirituality that they know is of God. Look at the black church experience. Look at our experience as opposed to any other color church experience. Why do we have church differently? Why is it that in the black church the expression and the emotionalism is high energy? Why is that? Is it because of what happened on the day of Pentecost? Look at the person next to you and say, heaven no. of what happened on some so-called day of Pentecost. 
you got to remember, brothers and sisters, when it comes to the biblical text, if there's something in there, chances are they stole that idea from somebody. The Pentecostal experience is a black thing. It's not a Jewish thing. What happened? What happened was the expression of African spirituality in these individuals in such a way to whereas God came upon them, even in the biblical text, in such a powerful manner that they were able to communicate with other people who didn't even speak their language. What are you saying, Pastor? You saying we should? You saying we should do that? What I'm saying is, you should free your African mind. That's what I'm saying, Black people. Don't be so religious. Don't be so formal that if an African next to you is moved by the ancestors in such a way that you are not used to it, that you frown on them. What's wrong with her? She lost her mind. You see, in our tribal experience, when they would, when they would go into, mind you all, this is long, long before. Some so-called biblical history even came on the scene. When the Africans would go into their tribal All right. spiritual thing. Spiritually, 
Y'all felt, see, you know it's deep because when I'm up here doing I can see y'all getting in it, right? And as soon as I stop, you stop. <laughs> That's how powerful this thing is. Our parents had the right motive. They were just calling on the wrong name. So what we have done in our African consciousness is we have disrespected their intent. Did I lose you? We have disrespected their intent because they weren't accurate in the words that they used. Look at the person next to you and say they could only call on what they knew to call. When you've been robbed of your culture, when you've been robbed of your God consciousness, when you have been robbed of your history, the only thing you know to call on is whatever culture has been replaced with. Whatever name or history has been replaced with. But deep in your African spirit, it's calling on the real name. And that's why black folk would have church the way they did. You could feel it. You could walk past a black church and feel the power of what was going on inside. We ain't here to manipulate your mind. I've had somebody say to me, you know they call y'all a cult. Well, hey, if you don't know no better, that's on you. But we don't tell you what to think over here. We don't, we don't do that. We teach you how to think over here. Okay? That's what we do, y'all. To try to get you back to your African spirituality. To return you to Sankofa. You get you back to where you came from. And I got news for you. If you would return to your after now I know some of y'all, some of y'all are gonna have a problem doing that. Because you gonna think you crazy. More or less somebody else thinking you crazy. You gonna think you crazy. You're gonna feel the African Holy Ghost rising up in you to do certain things, to speak certain things, to holler certain things, to scream certain things. And you know what you, you know what your Europeanization of your African mind is gonna do to you? It's gonna say, and you're going to be going through this throw-up syndrome. It want to come out, but you won't let it come out. It's time for us to stop suppressing our Africanness. Y'all, when I be up here dancing, I ain't trying to impress you. I ain't thinking about you. I can't dance as it is, but I'm enjoying myself. I'm dancing because that's the African thing. Why y'all think we got that move? Do you know, y'all see what I'm doing right now? You know white folk, have, white folk have to intentionally do that? Genetically, they have to intentionally, they have to make themselves do it. And that's why, that's why they walk this way. See, I'm melanin. 
just got a natural rhythm to us. That was a part of our spirituality. When it comes to the things of God, the things of the Spirit, we would release it in us. Yeah, buddy. They took that and took it to the nightclub, copied it and took it to the nightclub, and secularized it. And now you think that's part of the devil. No, brothers and sisters, that's our spirituality. Be your African self. I can't stress it enough. I'm going to keep saying it until it breaks loose in you. Don't be ashamed of your Africanness. Don't be ashamed of it. Don't be ashamed of your hair. Don't be ashamed of your skin. Don't be ashamed of your lips. Don't be ashamed of your nose. Women, don't be ashamed of your hips. Brothers, don't be ashamed of your muscles. God, that's why you think white men got into bodybuilding? Trying to be like how black brothers, you see black brothers walking down the street with no shirt on at all. They ain't lifted a weight yet. Straight up built. It's that melaninated toning in them. Don't be afraid of your African physiology. Don't be afraid of your African spirituality. Yes, there's a battle for the Bible going on. And the process to try to manipulate your mind. But I got news for you. Liberation has come. And it has set me free. Yeah, but. The Golden Stool, Africa. The 26th Hartley Lecture. The Golden Stool. Some Aspects of the Conflict of Cultures in Modern Africa. By Edwin W. Smith. There is nothing new under the sun, even immediately under it in Central Africa. The only novelty is the human heart, central man. That is never stale, and there are depths still unexplored, heights still unattained, warm rivers of love, cold streams of hatred, and vast plains where strange motives grow. These are our business. Henry Seton Merriman, author's preface. I beg to direct your attention to Africa. These words, so strangely unemotional to our ears, were spoken by David Livingstone to members of the University of Cambridge on December 4, 1857. His journey across Africa had made his name famous. On his return to England, universities and learned societies vied with each other in doing him honor. At Cambridge, the vice chancellor presided over the meeting in the venerable Senate House, which was crowded with graduates, undergraduates, and visitors. The plain, single-minded missionary was accorded a reception that an emperor might envy. And at the conclusion of his address, he launched an appeal which was destined to have a tremendous effect upon men and movements in after days, I beg to direct your attention to Africa. I know that in a few years I shall be cut off in that cock street, which is now open. Do not let it be shut again. I go back to Africa to try to make an open path for commerce and Christianity. Do you carry out the work which I have begun? I leave it with you. For as long as I can remember, David Livingstone has been my hero, my master. And when the Primitive Methodist Conference did me the honor of appointing me to this lectureship, I felt that in the choice of my subject, I could not do better than follow his lead and direct your attention to Africa. I was born in Africa, and the happiest years of my maturity have been spent there. To study its history and its peoples has always been my delight. 
my thoughts naturally gravitate thither. And in these days, when the problems arising from the contact of races and cultures cause grave concern to all thinking men, there are reasons why, apart from my personal predilections, your attention should be directed to Africa. I fear that my treatment of the subject may be summary. The space at my disposal does not admit of detailed examination of all the questions. Some, indeed, the problems caused by the immigration of Indians, for example, must be passed over entirely and others, such as the liquor traffic, can be barely mentioned. But so far as the limits allow, I shall endeavor to state the problems fairly and to indicate where in my judgment the solution is to be found. So, I beg to direct your attention to Africa. Edwin W. Smith, Walton on Thames, February 20th, 1926. Acknowledgements. I am grateful to gentlemen, experts in their several departments, who after reading chapters of my book and manuscript have devoured me with valuable suggestions. To wit, Sir Humphrey Leggett, DSO Chairman for the past six years of the East African section of the London Hamber of Commerce, and Mr. H. Worsley, General Manager of the British Cotton Growing Association, who have read Chapter 5, Dr. J. Howard Cook, formerly of Uganda, who has read Chapter 6, Sir Godfrey Lagden, sometime resident commissioner in Bashudalent, who has read Chapter 7, the Reverend W. W. Cash, DSO author of The Muslim World and Revolution and General Secretary of the Church Missionary Society, who has read Chapter 8, and Major Hans Vischer, Secretary of the Colonial Office Advisory Committee on Native Education, who has read Chapter 9. Needless to say, none of these gentlemen is responsible for the opinions I have expressed. My friends and colleagues, the Revs, J.C. Mantrip, C.P. Groves, B.D. and H.B. Hardy, and may have read the entire manuscript and helped me materially by their criticisms. I also wish to thank the able custodians of the magnificent library of the Royal Colonial Institute, who have always been ready and courteous in their assistance. I ought to add that the substance of Chapter 8 appeared as an article in the East and the West for April, 1924 and part of chapter 10 in the International Missionary Review for January 1922. The editors have kindly given permission for me to use these. Lastly and supremely, I thank Sir Frederick Luger, who, in the midst of his abundant labors, has kindly given time to read the book and to write an introduction. Sir Frederick's connection with Africa dates back to 1885, when as a young soldier he went to the Sudan. Since then, he has occupied many responsible positions culminating in the Governor Generalship of Nigeria. Now as a member of the Mandates Commission of the League of Nations, and in other capacities, he is doing work for which we all honor him. EWS, The Golden Stool, Chapter 1, wherein, for reasons which will presently appear, is told the story of the Golden Stool of Ashanti. In the interior of Gold Coast Colony, West Africa, lies the land of Ashanti, known to our fathers as the seat of a fierce barbarism that had its center in the capital, Kumasi. The Wesleyan missionary Thomas Birch Freeman styled it that bloody city. Early in the IH century, there came to the court of Osai Tutu, the fourth king of Ashanti, a celebrated magician named Anochi, who announced that he was specially commissioned by Anyam, the god of the sky, to make Ashanti a great and powerful nation. In the presence of the king and a great multitude, he drew down from heaven a black cloud from which issued the rumblings of thunder and a wooden stool. The stool sank slowly through the air till it rested upon the king's knees without touching the earth. Except for the gold which partially covered it, the stool was such as Africans commonly use. Anochi proclaimed that it contained the sunsum, the soul of the Ashanti people, that with it was bound up their power, their honor, their welfare, and that if ever it were captured or destroyed, the nation would perish. Thereafter, the stool was cherished as the most sacred possession of the tribe. 
It was never allowed to touch the ground. On the rare occasions when it was brought out, it was placed on an elephant skin spread upon the ground and was covered with a cloth of a special kind. Not even the king ever sat upon it. Whenever on great occasions its power was evoked, the king would pretend three times to sit upon it and would then seat himself upon his own stool and rest his arm upon the golden stool. Once a year it was carried in solemn procession under its own umbrella and accompanied by its own attendants who in pomp and number exceeded the attendants of the king who walked behind it. When, some time after the appearance of the stool, the king of Dankfivura, who claimed the overlordship of a shanty, sent to collect the customary tribute, consisting of a brass pan filled with gold dust, together with the favorite wife and the favorite son of every chief, the Ashanti people, emboldened by possession of the golden stool, resisted his demands. In the war which followed, the king of Dankpra and his queen were captured and beheaded and the golden fetters they had worn were taken to embellish the golden stool. Later on, the chief of a neighboring territory arrogantly made for himself a replica of the sacred emblem. The king of Ashanti led an army against him, cut off his head, and melted the gold that adorned the rival stool. The gold was cast into tamash representing the face of the impious chief, and these were hung as trophies upon the golden stool. As time went on, the power of the king of Ashanti increased enormously, and every victorious advance added to the prestige of the golden stool. The extension of their dominions brought their shanties in the early years of last century to the sea coast, where English forts had been built. Much of the subsequent history of the contact between the two races must be passed over. Frequent conflicts took place culminating in 1873 in the march of Sir Garnet Wolseley to Kamasi. After capturing and burning the town, he concluded a treaty with the king. Fourteen years later, Prempa became king of Ashanti and in the early years of his reign, peace and prosperity returned. But in 1893, trouble arose again and because Prempa would not accept a British protectorate over his country, nor stop the raiding of the coast tribes by his people, nor grant facilities for trade, an expedition was sent against him under Colonel Sir Francis Scott, who in 1896 occupied Kamasi with his troops. There was no fighting on this occasion. Not a shot was fired. At the time, this was put down to the promptitude with which the British forces carried out the operations. But we know now that the Ashantis feared to take the golden stool to a war in which they were sure to be defeated, and had therefore decided to offer no opposition. King Primpa was sent into banishment from which he was not allowed to return until 1925. Men of the king's bodyguard, who were the custodians of the stool, carried it off into the forest after Primpa's arrest, and deposited it at the village of Woways, where a special hut was built for it. Guardians were appointed to secure its safety. The British resident at Kamnasi, who regarded the stool as the symbol of the Ashanti kingly power, wished very much to gain possession of it, but all attempts failed to discover its whereabouts. In December 1899, an Ashanti youth offered to reveal its hiding place to Sir Frederick Hodgson, the governor of the Gold Coast. A small force of House of Troops went with the governor's private secretary, Captain Armitage, to bring in the trophy. They disguised the traitor as a soldier, and when they came to a village, put him into a hammock and caused porters to carry him so that he might pass as an invalid trooper. It is uncertain whether the youth had really been sent, as he professed, by the guardians of the golden stool, or whether, having discovered the stool, he was acting on his own initiative because he had some motive for betraying its position. Perhaps he was merely deceiving the governor. However that may be, the nearer they approached their destination, the greater became the nervousness of their mappy youth. One night he escaped and took refuge with the chief to whom he revealed the purpose of the expedition. Captain Armitage discovered him next morning, and learning what had taken place tried to persuade the chief that the youth was mad and that his ravings were not to be believed. 
Recovering their guide, they went on and finally near a village some 25 miles northeast of Kamasi, the boy led them by night along a path which he said would take them to the golden stool. But his nerve failed at that point. Neither persuasion nor threats could induce him to guide the party farther. And they were compelled to return empty-handed. In March 1900, Sir Frederick Hodgson visited Kumasi with the intention of clearing up the mystery of the golden stool. He summoned the chiefs and people to a meeting to be held on the 28th. And they came outwardly submissive, but inwardly boiling over with indignation. Captain Armitage's expedition, artfully conducted as it was, had aroused the nation's suspicions. It needed but a spark to set the land ablaze. That spark was supplied by the governor. He addressed the assembly through an interpreter and after telling them that King Primper would not be allowed to return to a shanty, proceeded to make several demands, the principal being for the delivery of the golden stool. According to a transcript of his speech forwarded by him to the colonial secretary, this is what Sir Frederick Hodgson said. There is one matter which I should like to talk to you about. I want first to ask a question of the King of Beckway. King, I want to ask you this question. You were put on the stool not very long ago. What would you have done to a man sitting on your right hand who kept back part of the stool equipment when you were in stool? King of Beckway, I have no power myself. My power is the government. Hodgson, then you would have reported the matter to me to deal with. King of Beckway, yes. Hodgson, and you would have expected me either to get you the equipment or to punish the man. King of Beckway, yes. Hodgson, now kings and chiefs, you have heard what the King of Beckway has said upon the point I raised. What must I do to the man? whoever he is, who has failed to give to the queen, who is the paramount power in this country, the stool to which she is entitled. Where is the golden stool? Why am I not sitting on the golden stool at this moment? I am the representative of the paramount power. Why have you relegated me to this chair? Why did you not take the opportunity of my coming to Kamasi to bring the golden stool and give it to me to sit upon? However, you may be quite sure that although the government, this was a local chief, they were called kings in those days, has not yet received the golden stool at your hands, it will rule over you with the same impartiality and with the same firmness sis, if you have produced it. A singularly foolish speech, an excellent example of the blunders that are made through ignorance of the African mind. The governor regarded the stool as a kind of stone of scone upon which the kings of Ashanti were seated at their accession, a spive mibble of supreme authority, and hence, as the representative of Queen Victoria, he naturally expected to have it brought out as his throne. As a matter of fact, no king of Ashanti had ever sat upon it. It was held in reverence by the people as being, not an appurtenance of the kingly office, but the embodiment of the nation's soul. If the governor had known the real significance of the stool in the mind of the people, he would not have reproached the chiefs in this manner. This much may be said in his defense. He blundered in ignorance. The speech was received by the assembly in silence. But the chiefs returned home to prepare for war. Within a week, fighting had commenced. The meeting described was held on March 28th. Three days later, the governor sent Captain Armitage with 45 soldiers to get possession of the golden stool. The wretched youth already mentioned led the party along a faintly visible track in the forest and brought them to a hut beneath whose floor. He declared the sacred emblem lay buried. It was not there, however, and evidently the soil had never been disturbed. The discomfited party set out to return to Kamasi, were ambushed on the road, and had to fight their way through. Within a very short time, Kumasi was completely beleaguered by the insurgent Ashantis. Reinforcements came up from the coast and increased the garrison to 700, 29 Europeans, including for women, and the remainder native troops and camp followers. Towards the end of June, the governor, with some European officers and 600 house of soldiers, 
fought his way through the besiegers to the coast, leaving three European officers and a hundred houses to carry on with three weeks ration. Not until July 15th did the relieving column under Colonel James Wilcox succeed, after a magnificent march from the coast amid appalling difficulties, in raising the siege. There is no need to dwell upon the terrible sufferings endured by the tiny garrison, most of whom were foxing to weak to stand when relief arrived. Fighting went on until towards the end of December. The total casualties in this little war numbered 1,070 British side. Of our British officers, nine were killed, six died of disease, and 43 were wounded. How many of the Ashantis were killed and wounded is not known. What the affair cost and money I do not know. Certainly, it was a heavy price to pay for a blunder. Ashanti was formally annexed as a British possession. In the settlement, nothing was said about the golden stool. Twenty years later, a quarrel arose over the ownership of land at the village of Woways where, apparently, the stool had been hidden all this time. The chief commissioner, as the British official was styled, thought it well to make an inspection before giving a decision in the dispute. He had no idea, it is evident, that he was going to where the stool was kept, but the guardians of the stool were not convinced on this point, and as soon as they heard of his intention of proceeding to Woways, they conveyed their charge secretly to a place called Abubugia. In August, 1920, a chief named Esabanan desired to have a new road made between Abubugia and a neighboring town, and the British government remurder took the work. At a certain point, the overseer in charge saw that by diverting the road in a fresh direction, the construction would be rendered easier. He gave his orders accordingly. The native headman of the place, a man named Danso, was greatly perturbed by this change of plan. As a matter of fact, he was in charge of the golden stool and had buried it thereabouts but owing to the clearance of some bush, could not distinguish the exact spot where it lay. His fears were not unwarranted. One of the workmen drove his pick into a box hidden in the soil, and his exclamations of surprise drew his mates to the place. Danso hastened thither and tried hard to get them away, but their curiosity was aroused and it was not until he assured them that the box contained a smallpox fetish that they would leave it alone. They were, however, only half convinced by what he said. That night Danso, with the help of some old men, put the golden stool into a tin trunk and carried it off to the house of a man named Yankira. They took a solemn oath not to reveal the secret to others. But the rogue makers had seen too much, and evidently subsequent reflection led them to realize what had happened. Perhaps they babbled. Three days later, a man named Senyagia, who by descent was a stool carrier and had become a Christian, turned up at the village. What arguments he employed are not known but he persuaded Danso and Yankira to strip the stool of its gold and golden ornaments and to share the booty with him. Another young man named Yogo, who chanced to pass at the time, claimed and received a share. The desecration of the stool soon became known to the chiefs of Kamasi. They discovered that a certain native goldsmith had received and melted down one of the golden bells and that the golden fetters had been pawned for 30 shillings. Most of the rest of the gold had disappeared. When it gradually spread abroad, the news caused great excitement among the people. At first, it seemed incredible to them that their own fellow countrymen should have perpetrated such an atrocious deed when they could no longer doubt. Their anger against the impious culprits waxed hot, and had not the police hurried the men off to gal, they would have been tom limb from limb. Wisely determining to leave the case in the hands of the chiefs, the government limited its action to seeing fair play and to having the last word in determining what punishment should finally be inflicted upon the prisoners. The provincial chiefs, summoned to the capital, conducted a public inquiry which lasted several days. They invited the ministers of various religious denominations to be present. The result of the inquiry was drawn up in terms which are worth quoting. The court found that the men named Seniagia, 
Danso, Yankira, Yogo, together with Kujo Roku, the goldsmith, being natives of Ashanti and subjects of the gold stool of the Ashanti nation, did expose, steal, destroy, and otherwise unlawfully deal with and use the said gold stool, thereby betraying the said Ashanti nation and laying it open to disgrace and ridicule, and debasing the name and fame of Ashanti, much to the annoyance and provocation of all people, young and old, thereby giving occasion for disturbance and bloodshed, but for the intervention of government. The chiefs recommended that these men should be put to death, but the government substituted banishment for the supreme penalty. Esabonin, whose duty it had been to guard the stool, was found guilty of negligence and was deposed from his chieftainship and banished. Of eight other persons who were accused of buying the ornaments of the stool, five were acquitted and the other three were ordered to swear fetish before the chiefs and were fined. One of them agreed forthwith to pay 100 pounds and the chiefs were so pleased by his ready compliance that they reduced the fine to sale, one sheep into bottles of whiskey. The fines having been paid, the ceremony of the oath followed. The fetish was brought in, attended by its own retinue and carried beneath the umbrella that always figures in the shanty ceremonials. It was treated, in fact, as if it were a chief of high standing. When the expensive carpet covering it was removed, the fetish was revealed to be a couple of brass bells of unequal size. They were probably bells that had been attached to the golden stool. Two of the chiefs came forward and after removing their headgear, each laid a hand on a bell. A third chief then removed one of his sandals and ordered one of the guilty men to put his foot upon it. Placing his foot upon the man's, the chief administered the oath in these terms. I swear by the great oath chromatic that if I am in possession of any of the ornaments of the golden stool or have given possession of them to any person to hold in trust for me, may the fetish kill me. The chief then held the larger of the two bells to the man's mouth, and he touched it with his tongue three times while one of the attendants kept ringing the second bell. After invoking some spirit, the chief placed the large bell three times on the man's head, and again the other bell was rung. A fresh bottle of whiskey was then opened and a wine glass full was handed to the chief who spilt three drops on the ground and emptied the remainder on the man's head. The two other men undertook to find sureties for the amount of the fine inflicted upon them. Why, it may be asked. Did not the government, which in times past had tried so hard to secure the golden stool, take this opportunity of seizing it? The answer to this question provides one of the most interesting features of the whole affair. In earlier days, the authorities blundered through sheer ignorance. But recently, they had appointed an anthropologist whose business it was to study Ashanti customs and beliefs. And this officer, Captain Rattray, a man of conspicuous ability and long experience, endowed with much tact and wholly sympathetic in his attitude towards the people, had investigated and reported on the history of the stool. What he said enlightened the government as to the true nature of the reverence in which the Ashantis held this ancient shrine, the shrine of the nation's soul. Every native of Ashanti believes that a stool is the repository of a man's soul. They place miniature fetters around the central support of a stool to chain down the soul to it. The golden stool holds the soul, not of any individual, but of the nation. The idea may seem fantastic, but it can be readily understood why. Believing as they do, the Ashantis revered the stool so highly, and why they went to war with Britain rather than surrender it. They would have gone to war again in 1920 had the government taken advantage of the opportunity to seize the stool. From such a conflict, the timely researches of Captain Rattray saved Britain and Ashanti. For, realizing at last what the stool stood for, the government made it known that so far as it was concerned there was no longer any need to conceal the stool and that no attempt would be made in future to interfere so long as the Ashanti did not make use of it for seditious purposes. No declaration of the British government perhaps was ever received with such joy by the Ashantis as was this. 
when the women of Ashanti wished to offer Princess Mary a wedding present. Their gift took the form of a silver stool, a replica of one that belonged to their principal queen mother. At a great public assembly, this venerable lady presented it to Lady Guggersberg, the wife of the governor, for transmission to the princess. Her speech, she said, I place this stool in your hands. It is a gift on her wedding day for the king's child, Princess Mary. Ashanti stool makers have carved it and Ashanti silversmiths have embossed it. It may be that the king's child has heard of the golden stool of Ashanti. That is the stool which contains the soul of the Ashanti nation. All we women of Ashanti thank the governor exceedingly because he has declared to us that the English will never again ask us to hand over that stool. This stool we give gladly. It does not contain our soul as our golden stool does, but it contains all the love of us queen mothers and of our women. The spirit of this love we have bound to the stool with silver fetters just as we are accustomed to bind our own spirits to the base of our stools. We pray the great God, Yankapon, on whom men lean and do not fall, whose day of worship is a satin whom their shanty serve just as she serves him, that he may give the king's child and her husband long life and happiness. And finally, when she sits upon this silver stool, which the women of Ashanti have made for their white queen mother, may she call us to mind. It must now be explained why this tale has been told at such length. The story is romantic in itself, but it has been told for a purpose. The title of this lecture will have reminded my readers of the famous Golden Bough. In writing the book which bears that title, Sir James Fraser started from the legend of the priesthood of Nemi, the beautiful lake in the neighborhood of Rome. The rule of the priesthood was that whoever aspired to the office had first to attempt the life of the actual holder of it. Having slain him, he succeeded to the office and held it until he himself was slain in turn by a stronger or craftier man. The candidate had to break off a bough from a certain tree which grew within the sanctuary at Nimi. This fateful branch, according to ancient opinion, was that golden bough which Virgil tells us Ibnius plucked before he essayed his perilous journey to the world of the dead. It is a strange story, and the illustrious author, when he sought for an explanation of it, was led from point to point till he had filled seven large volumes with an enormous collection of facts to say nothing of interesting theories concerning primitive society and religion. Now the golden stool might lead on to as far-reaching an inquiry as the golden bough led Sir James Fraser. But this lecture is limited to one small volume. There is here in miniature the story of a conflict of cultures. People of an advanced civilization encounter a barbaric nation, many of whose customs bewilder and shock them. War ensues. The white men show themselves ignorant of the black man's beliefs, beliefs which they label as superstitions. The black man treasures his ancient heritage and is prepared to suffer and to die rather than surrender it. Blunders are committed which can only be remedied by the aid of anthropology. Learning by experience to respect the African outlook upon life, the British authority wins the loyalty of its subjects. But the African social system suffers in the conflict that has taken place. The king is deposed and his authority is invested in the British crown. Limits are placed upon the authority of the native chiefs. They retain the semblance of power under the supervision of the suzerain, but are not allowed to inflict capital punishment. Meanwhile, other forces are at work. Christianity enters and gains considerable influence. In the story of the golden stool, the villain of the piece is a Christian who shows himself so far emancipated from the ancient restraints that he robs the sacred emblem of his nation. Here are disintegrative forces at work. What is taking the place of the old social bond now crumbling before the advance of the alien culture? That new habits are being formed, which cannot be for the welfare of the people, is seen in the incongruous use of whiskey in an ancient religious rite. 
Thus, the history of the Golden Stool brings us face to face with some of the many problems arising out of the conflict of cultures in Africa. Thank you for joining me for today's reading. If you haven't listened to the previous chapter, I recommend you do so before listening to this chapter. That way you will get a more complete understanding of the book. Previous chapters are available at quellycush.com or simply click the link in this video's description below. As you listen to this book, notice the blatant overtone of racism and prejudice that the author exudes. Notice how he speaks of Africans as if they are lowly and undeserving of their own land. Keep in mind that the author of this book is a Christian evangelist and this writing is from the late 1800s to early 1900s. And if you have Christian or Muslim friends and family, please share this book with them so that they, too, can hashtag wake up. Okay, let's get started. Chapter 2 of The Golden Stool Wherein are set forth some of the conditions in the new Africa in the form of a contrast between 1876 and 1926. 1. In 1876, David Livingstone, the greatest Christian of the 19th century, had been dead three years during his lifetime and largely through his own explorations and the stimulus he gave to other travelers. The African continent became known as it had never been known before to the outside world. In the early years of the century, Aerosmith presented the African Exploration Society with a map from which all hypothetical features had been removed and which showed the interior as a blank. European enterprise had been busy upon the West Coast since the 15th century and South Africa since the 17th. But it was not till the 30s of last century that the geographical problem of the Niger was solved and not until the 50s was the Zambezi explored. By 1873, many of the chief features of the continent had been revealed, but some were still obscure. In 1874, soon after Livingstone's body, minus the heart, which remained in Africa, was laid to rest in Westminster Abbey. Henry M. Stanley, who had been fired by the news of Livingstone's death with a resolution to continue his work, was asked by the editor of the Daily Telegraph what remained to be done. He replied, the outlet of Lake Tanganyika is undiscovered. We know nothing scarcely, except what Speak has sketched out of Lake Victoria. We do not even know whether it consists of one or many lakes, and therefore the sources of the Nile are still unknown. Moreover, the western half of the African continent is still a white blank. Under the auspices of the Daily Telegraph and the New York Herald, Stanley set out a few weeks later to settle these problems and to investigate and report upon the haunts of the slave traders, with one possible exception, namely Livingstone's journey across Africa in 1853 Stanley's expedition, which in 999 days traversed the continent from east to west, surpassed all others in importance for the future history of Africa. In June 1876, Stanley was circumnavigating Lake Tanganyika. When he emerged from the mouth of the Congo in 1877, the last of the great geographical secrets had been wrested from the dark continent. Since that date, much has been done to fill in the details of the map. A great deal still remains to be accomplished in the way of accurate survey. But now it can be said that Africa is known through and through. 2. Speaking of his great journey, Stanley said, uh, I declare solemnly to you that from a distance of 10 miles from Bagamoyo, my starting place on the east coast of Africa, until I sighted an English flag at the masthead of a merchant river steamer on the Congo, along a journey of 7,600 miles, I never saw a flag or an emblem or symbol, flagstaff, erection of wood, stone or iron to indicate that I had come across civilized or semi-civilized, power or authority. The authority I encountered everywhere being the authority of independent native chiefs, exacting tribute on the eastern half, and opposing violence on the western half. In this respect, the map of Africa presents a very striking contrast today.
1876, the modern scramble, which has resulted in parceling out almost the entire continent among the powers of Europe, was only on the eve of beginning. This, in brief, was the situation in 1876. Egypt was still under the suzerainty of Turkey. The country was bankrupt and this year saw the beginning of the dual control which lasted with some interruption for six years. When France retired and Great Britain was left alone to pursue through Lord Cromer, the beneficent work which transformed Egypt into a prosperous country. From one at the Berlin Conference, H.M. Stanley, The Congo and the Founding of its Free State 1885, Volume 2, P411. In about 1819, Egyptian authority had been extending south along the Nile up to the Albert Nyanza. The Mahdi had not yet appeared on the scene, but the slave trading and misgovernment against which General Gordon, then in Egyptian service as Governor General of the Sudan, was heroically and vainly struggling, were sowing the seeds of the revolt which broke out in 1881. In 1876, the Suez Canal had been opened seven years. This was an event of the highest consequence for the future development of East Africa, since the protection of the great line of communication between the metropolis and India became of paramount interest in British policy. Italy had not set foot on African soil in 1876. Tripolitania and Tunisia, later to come under the control respectively of Italy and France, still formed part of the Ottoman Empire. Of all the European powers, France only at that time had embarked upon a policy of appropriation with definite ends in view. Ever since she had lost her colonies and the Napoleonic Wars, her eyes had been fixed on Africa as the region which afforded the best opportunities of regaining an empire. In 1830, she began to take possession of Algeria, an acquisition which, up to 1864, is said to have cost her 150,000 men and $120 million. With the appointment in 1854 of General Faderb as governor of Senegal began the era of conquest which has secured to France the largest share of North Africa, a conquest which the French regard as the means for creating a more harmonious order. France had also secured ports on the Red Sea. Her policy received fresh impetus when after the war of 1870 she felt greater need of recouping herself in Africa for her losses in Europe. As early as 1415, Portugal had begun the modern partition of Africa by the capture of Chuta. She had built forts on the west coast in the 15th century and had established herself on the east coast in the 16th. In 1876 she held territory at Cape Verde on the west coast and along the shores of Angola south of the Congo. By arbitration, she had secured in 1875 the very useful port of De La Goa Bay. In 1876, Spain was in possession, as now of Fernando Po. The only other European flag which flew over African soil in 1876 was the Union Jack. For the previous 80 years, British explorers had been busy on the Niger, but no territory in the interior had been occupied. Only small patches at Sierra Leone on the Gambia and on the Gold Coast, and the port of Lagos were in British possession. Great Britain had no intention, no desire, to extend her dominions in West Africa. The policy formulated by a parliamentary committee in 1865 was still in force. All further extension of territory or assumption of government, or new treaty offering any protection to native tribes, was held to be inexpedient. In South Africa, the borders of Cape Colony did not extend much beyond the Orange River. The area of the diamond fields around Kimberley was acquired in 1876 by arrangement with the Boers and Greekwoods. Cecil Rose had then been six years in Africa and in the intervals of making money out of diamonds was dreaming of painting red most of the map of the world. Bichwanalin had not yet come under British rule nor Zululin nor the Transkian territories. Bashudalin had been taken under our protection in 1868. Natal was a British colony 
but south of the island of Socotra, which was occupied in 1876, there was no other British possession along the east coast. The two Dutch republics, the Orange Free State and the Transvaal, were independent in 1876. So were Liberia and Abyssinia. To sum up, the total area controlled by Europeans in 1876 did not exceed one-tenth of the continent. All the rest of Africa was held by independent African or semi-African states and tribes. Now, in 1926, barely one-tenth of Africa is free from European domination. Indeed, if we remember that the Republic of Liberia is controlled financially by the United States and that Egypt, while nominally a sovereign power, is still garrisoned by British troops, we must conclude that Abyssinia, covering an area of 350,000 square miles, is the only entirely independent state left in Africa. How this startling change has taken place during the 50 years since 1876 has often been told, and the story need not be repeated here at any length. Stanley's great journey precipitated the scramble. King Leopold took the initiative by calling the Brussels Conference of 1876, a conference which might have led to international agreement and to something like a system of mandates such as regulate the holding of the late German colonies today under the League of Nations. An international African association was actually formed, but it soon became evident that each nation would, like Hallow the Wind, fight for its own hand. The Congo state, founded for the international association, became, for all intents and purposes, the private domain of King Leopold and his government a scandal to Christendom until Belgium took it over as a colony. Germany, unified after the War of 1870 and enriched with a rapidly developing industry, entered suddenly into the scramble by raising her flag, first in Damerlin and then in East Africa in 1884. By this action, France was spurred to fresh activities. Great Britain saw that if she did not bester herself, she would be left behind in the race, and urged on by commercial companies, missionary societies and enterprising individuals intervened at last tardily but very effectively portugal awoke out of a long period of dormancy and succeeded in establishing some of her fanciful claims based upon real and alleged discoveries in the past italy came in later and acquired eritrea part of somaliland tripolitania and cyrenaica her ambitions concerning abyssinia met with a rude check on the battlefield of dogali in 1887 Spain also entered into the competition and gained 70,000 square miles of the Sahara and the region on the Muni River, south of the Cameroons. Later, her protectorate was recognized over a narrow strip of Morocco, which in recent years has cost her heavily in men, money, and prestige. The motives underlying this partition of Africa need not be described here at any length. We shall understand them better when we have reached a later chapter of this book. A French writer says that the European invasion was guided one-tenth by civilizing zeal and nine-tenths by the bait of game. Commercial, strategical, and philanthropic reasons entered into it. It must be remembered that in the 19th century the population of Europe increased threefold and that this meant an enlarged demand for food for more abundant supplies of raw materials and for new markets for the products of the factories. The improving standard of living lead to a call for such luxuries pneumatic tires on cycles and cars, for example, as only the tropics could supply. No government could allow traders to enter the almost unknown and savage lands of Africa without affording them protection. Nor could any humane government allow the peoples of Africa to be exploited by uncontrolled and irresponsible European citizens. To such considerations must be added the fact that the conscience of Europe had been aroused to the iniquity of the slave trade, and it soon became apparent that the healing of this open sore of the world as Livingstone called it, could not be accomplished by treaties made in Brussels or Berlin. 
nor by patrolling the coast with gunboats. There must be active intervention in the interior, which again meant commerce and government control. Cynics may sneer at this alleged philanthropic motive, and it cannot be denied that sometimes it has been little more than a cloak for sinister deeds, but it was a real motive. Humanitarian and religious sentiment has generally supported intervention. At certain critical moments, the Christian public of England urged their government with persistence and success along this path. It cannot be denied that other motives have been operant. The French have undoubtedly been stimulated by a consciousness that North Africa supplies fine recruits to supplement her decreasing manpower for the defense of her home frontiers. Whatever the motives and whatever the results, the last 50 years have drawn Africa into the orbit of European politics. For good or evil, the vast majority of African peoples has been brought under the sway of white men. Three, commerce has been referred to, and we must return to it later. Here it will be sufficient to note that the opening up of Africa by the explorers, great and small, has revealed the vast wealth, actual and potential of the continent. It is now known that it is far from being what Defoe said of it, the most desolate, desert and inhospitable country in the world. Even Greenland and Nova Zembla not accepted. On the contrary, its mineral and agricultural opulence makes it one of the most valuable quarters of the globe. During these 50 years, much has been done to turn its resources to account, and only a beginning has been made as yet. A few figures to show the growth of commerce with Africa are all that are needed here to point the contrast between 1876 and 1926. It is said that in 1815, the total value of the commerce, including slaves, did not exceed 30 million. Of this amount, the exports formed one half and 50% of them came from Egypt and other Mediterranean countries. In 1876, these figures were doubled. In 1925, the total value of the commerce was not less than $600 million. It can with safety be foretold that this striking increase in the economic value of Africa to the outside world will grow more and more in years to come. Four, when my parents landed at Algoa Bay, South Africa, in May 1874, it took them, with delays on the road, 26 days to reach Alawu North by coach, a distance of 300 miles. In 1876, the era of my birth, only 109 miles of railway were open in Cape Colony and only a short narrow gauge line of two miles. The first railway in Africa, in Natal. The other railways in Africa at that time were the Egyptian less than 1,000 miles, and the Algerian, about 300 miles. At present, there are some 35,000 miles of railways in the whole continent. These lines have been built partly for strategic or military purposes, but mainly to provide highways for commerce. The mines have acted as magnets, drawing the railways farther inland. The revolution that they have caused in the life of Africa is beyond all measurement. Let us visualize one picture. Here in 1876 is Henry M. Stanley crossing the continent from Zanzibar to the mouth of the Congo. He travels on foot, except when he can launch on some lake or navigable river the teakwood boat which his men carry laboriously in section. He engages 300 men to carry 18,000 pounds weight of stores, beads, wire, medicines, provisions, calico, tents, and other articles. With the wives of some of the men and a small armed escort, his attendants number 356 in all, very few of whom will survive to see their homes again. Death by disease, accident, and hostile spears will take the majority. At an average rate of seven miles a day, they reached the southern shore of Lake Victoria after passing through thirst and famine belts and encountering what Stanley calls bellicose exhibitions on the part of unfriendly natives who try to block his way. After visiting Uganda, he strikes out to circumnavigate Lake Tanganyika and thence crosses to Nyang on the Congo, the point at which Livingstone was compelled to turn back. 
He constructs canoes, launches his boat, mans them with the remnant of his followers, and boldly strikes out along the unknown highway, which no white man has ever traveled before. Whenever they reach the rapids, the little fleet is painfully hauled over the rocks and levinched again. Now they paddle between banks lined with cannibals who shout, meat, meat, and then pursue them in their canoes. Stanley fought 32 small battles on the Congo, the only alternative being, as Harmon Bentley said, to walk quietly into their cooking pots and submit to dissection and the processes of digestion. So he wins his way with indomitable energy and all the while he is dreaming. Looking upon the undeveloped wealth of the country, the fine promise of some tribes, the hideous barbarity of others. He sees visions of a time when all the land will be redeemed from wildness. The industry and energy of the natives stimulated. The havoc of the slave trade stopped and all the countries round about permeated with the nobler ethics of a higher humanity. What Africa needed, he said, was railways. He called them a tramway to be an iron bond, never to be again broken between Africa and the more favored continents. Finally, Stanley and his followers stumble, haggard, crippled, diseased to the Atlantic shore after 999 days of travel. That was in 1877. Any tourist of today who wishes with a minimum of fatigue to cross Africa from west to east or from east to west will have a choice of easy routes. He can accomplish the journey with no more exertion than is involved in walking from one vehicle to another and in something less than a month. If he wishes to go from Cape to Cairo, it will take longer. But it will be scarcely more arduous by railway, motor car, and river steamer he can cover the 7,000 miles in 45 days. If he is lucky enough to catch all the connections, he will probably grumble if a shower bath and plenty of ice are not available every day. It should be added that the motor car is playing an enormous part in the opening up of Africa. Even the Sahara is being conquered by it. In 1922, the Frenchman drove a car from Algeria to Timbuktu. In 1924, another Frenchman made the journey in 64 hours. Early in 1925, six cars crossed the Sahara, from Tunis to Lake Chad, and another French expedition traversed Africa. At almost its broadest part, from Donakry on the Atlantic to Massawa on the Red Sea, a distance of nearly 3,750 miles. In December 1924, startling advertisements appeared in the papers inviting us to cross the Sahara in comfort, London to Timbuktu in 12 days. Enjoyed the most wonderful of journeys and the most thrilling of holidays. And although this tourist scheme had to be abandoned on account of threat and raised by desert nomads, nobody doubts that the desert has been conquered, so far as motor transport is concerned. The camel has had its day in the north, as the ox has had its day in the south. In 1925, a gallant French officer and his wife motored across the continent from Algiers to Cape Town and an English officer, and his wife from Cape Town to Cairo. 10,000 cars a year are imported into South Africa. Nearly every farmer of importance possesses one and can get about easily, a fact which facilitates the exchange of ideas and stimulates progress, or the reverse. Everywhere in Africa, the petrol-driven car is working a quiet or perhaps not altogether quiet revolution in traveling and transport of goods. The airplane has also invaded Africa. In 1919, an air route was laid out by British officers between Cairo and Cape Town aerodromes being built at 24 places. The following year, two gallant South African officers, Van Rijnveld and Brand, flew over the route in 72 hours, 40 minutes. During the winter of 1925, Mr. Alan Copham, who had already proved it possible to breakfast in London and dine in Africa on the same day, accomplished the flight from England to Cape Town in 90 flying hours and flew back from Cape Town to Cairo in nine and a half days. In 1902, it took Mrs. Smith 
and myself 53 days to travel from Bulawajo to the Zambezi in an ox wagon. Mr. Copham covered the same distance in the reverse direction in two hours, 40 minutes. In 1925, a scheme was launched by which it is hoped eventually to bring East Africa within six days of London by way of the Nile. The first regular African air service was established on the Congo between Stanley Pool and Stanleyville, a distance of 1,000 miles, in 1921. The airplane has already been pressed into the service of the mission. We may live to see our missionaries carried from London to the CAFU by airplane or airship. The telegraph has also been extended in Africa. Its range in 1876 was extremely limited. By 1903, it had been carried northward from Cape Town to Ujiji on Lake Tanganyika. Since then, it has gone south from Egypt across the Sudan and penetrated in all directions. In 1876, Stanley was out of the world when he reached the Victoria Nyanza. In 1914, the very day war broke out to British officers were killed there in battle in response to telegraphic orders from London and Berlin to commence hostilities and wireless which during the war played a prominent part in Africa, is now breaking down the isolation of life in the interior. Already at the time of writing, early in 1925, news comes that in Nyasaland they are listening into places in South Africa. People in Nigeria hear songs that are sung in London. What will it not mean to solitary exiles to be able to hear a concert or sermon broadcasted from England? It is theoretically possible, if not as yet practicable, for my old colleagues in northern Rhodesia to listen to this lecture delivered in Manchester. This certainly was never dreamt of in 1876. The continent of Africa has shrunk to smaller dimensions, reckoned in time. 5. Another most important fact must be noticed. The progress that has been made in conquering African diseases. Here again an effective contrast may be drawn between 1876 and 1926. The early records of West Africa made very depressing reading. In 1823, seven schoolmasters, five of them accompanied by their wives, landed at Sierra Leone, well named the White Man's Grave. In the service of the Church Missionary Society, six out of the twelve died that year, and for more within 18 months. In 25 years, 109 men and women died on that mission. The Wesleyan mission on the Gold Coast went through similar experiences. The first man who was sent out in 1835 died within six months, the next to within for months and the next to within a month. The ill-fated Niger expedition of 1841 tows 42 men out of 150 within two months. This heavy mortality has continued into more recent times. A grim story, perhaps apocryphal, is told of a newly appointed governor of one of the West Coast possessions, who, being a careful man, asked whether the government would pay his fare home when his time expired. After some delay, he was told that the question had never previously arisen. Cannon Robinson tells that when he was on the Niger in 1890 for the average length of a white man's life was reckoned at two years. Miss Kingsley, writing of about the same period, declared that there was no other region in the world that could match West Africa for the steady kill. Kill. Kill that is malaria worked on the white men, 85% of them, she reckoned, died of fever or returned home with their health permanently wrecked. The West Coast, perhaps, provides the extreme example of the unhealthiness of Africa. But in varying degrees, much the same must be said concerning other tropical portions of the continent. They have levied a very heavy toll on the white race. To adapt, Rudyard Kipling, if blood be the price of empire, we have bought it fair. The ruby crown that Britannia wears is jeweled with British blood. It is a truth that makes one glow with pride that even in those deadly times, there was never any lack of men and women to answer the call of duty, whether traders, officials, soldiers, or missionaries. 
when in the 50s John Bowen was chosen as Bishop of Sierra Leone, where his two predecessors had died within two years of their consecration, and some of his friends urged him to refuse. He replied, if I served in the Queen's army and refused to go to a post of danger, I should be disgraced in the eyes of men. Were I offered a bishopric in England, I might feel at liberty to decline it. One in Sierra Leone, I must accept. Two years later, he was dead. This is typical of the spirit that has made possible the penetration of Africa. What is the cause of this heavy mortality amongst white men in tropical Africa? It has generally been ascribed to climate, and the climate of Africa has been held to be so bad as to rule out any prospect of successful European colonization, so far as the tropics are concerned. Mr. Benjamin Kidd said in 1898, the attempt to acclimatize the white man in the tropics must be recognized to be a blunder of the first magnitude. All experiments based upon the idea are mere idle and empty enterprises foredoomed to failure. But much research has been carried on since that time. And while few were presumed to dogmatize on the subject, the trend of expert opinion seems to be towards the conclusion that not climatic factors. Heat, humidity combined with heat, tropical sunshine, but rather disease is the obstacle in the white man's path. And the discovery of paramount importance that has marked the last 50 years is that these tropical diseases are preventable. The discoveries as to malarial fever, for example, which date from about 1897 and are due to such benefactors of the human race as labyrinth. Manson and Ross have entirely altered the prospects of life in tropical Africa. We are now aware of the simple truth that if a man is never bitten by a mosquito, he will never suffer from malaria. And the problem of living in the tropics has largely resolved itself into the problem of getting rid of or circumventing the particular mosquito which conveys the infection. Other diseases endemic in the tropics, the presence of which is one of the chief causes of the African's backwardness, are under investigation with promising results. It is now known that leprosy and sleeping sickness are, to some extent at least, curable and that the latter is preventable. Yaws and syphilis can be cured. Smallpox has been eradicated wherever vaccination has been practicable. Typhoid fever and dysentery are known to be avoidable by inoculation. Ankylostomiasis and other parasitic diseases can be prevented. The impression must not be conveyed that Africa has been turned into a health resort. Far from it. But proof is forthcoming that wherever sanitary measures founded upon these modern discoveries have been properly taken, there the rate of mortality among Europeans in Africa, and among Africans themselves has decreased considerably. West African conditions have changed so greatly that Sir Gordon Guggesberg, the governor of the Gold Coast, was able in 1924 to say, if statistics don't lie, West Africa is a healthier place than London. Probably he did not intend this to be taken au pied de la lip. For in another place he declared that the married European with children has not and never will have a real home life in West Africa. This, of course, is the vital question. Can Europeans live in tropical Africa, maintain their physical and moral vigor, and rear families their equal in stamina to the parent stock in the neighborhood of black people of a much lower standard of civilization? This remains to be proved or disproved, but the statement is warranted that in view of physiological discoveries that have been made, and that are still being made, it is hazardous to affirm that white men can never acclimatize in tropical Africa. At any rate, so far as disease is concerned, there seems to be no insuperable reason why that region should not become the home of a vigorous European population, if only they will obey the laws of health. 6. Henry M. Stanley's starting point on his transcontinental journey of 1874 was Zanzibar, where he found Bishop Steer at work almost single-handed and where the cathedral church was already built on the site of the old slave market. At Bogomoyo, on the mainland opposite Zanzibar, a Roman Catholic mission was founded, 
but from that point onward he encountered neither missionary nor mission station. Had he taken the northerly route to Victoria Nyanza, he would have found toward three stations near the coast. But no more. Now, as for some years past, a chain of mission stations extends from the east to the west coast with but a break of 300 miles in the center. And by the time this lecture is printed, it is possible that this gap will have been closed. Craps, 70-year-old dream of an apostle's way across Africa would then have been fulfilled. One day, when they were paddling down the Congo in January, 1877, Stanley's English companion, Francis Pocket, began to sing sadly, The homeland, the fair land, refuge for all distressed. Where pain and sin ne'er enter in, but all is peace and rest. Stanley bade him choose some more cheerful tune, so he sang. Brightly gleams our banner, pointing to the sky, waving wanderers onward to their home on high. These were the first Christian hymns sung, so far as there is any record, on the Congo. It was not until two years later that the Baptists commenced their mission near the coast in Congolin. In subsequent years, they worked their way into the center. In 1926, they report 100 into foreign agents. 914 African workers, 679 of them paid by the native church, a Christian community of 33,889, 990 to elementary and other schools including for training and 11 industrial institutions with 28,335 scholars. Many of these converts were gathered from among the tribesmen who in 1877 greeted Stanley with their cannibal cry, meat, meat. There are many other missions at work in this region. An even more remarkable change has taken place in Uganda. In 1875, Stanley taught the king, Tasa, his first lessons in Christianity, and fondly believed that he had made a convert of him, that some pious, practical missionary would come here. He wrote in his journal, Here, gentlemen, is your opportunity. He entrusted a letter to a Belgian officer who was traveling home from Uganda, appealing for a mission to be established in the country. A letter which was found on the murdered body of this officer, forwarded to England by General Gordon, and published in the Daily Telegraph on November 15, 1875. A week later, they wasted no time in those days. The Church Missionary Society accepted the challenge. And in April 1876, Alexander McKay and the rest of the first party started on the long, wearisome journey to Uganda. In 1880, for there were 38 Buganda Christians. Today, in the whole protectorate of Uganda, there are 500,000 Christians, Protestant and Catholic. The Anglicans have 400 schools with 117,000 scholars, 2,000 places of worship, and a native clergy, canons, and rural deans among them. In October 1875, the pioneers of the Livingstonian Mission steamed into Lake Nyasa. When the Jubilee was celebrated in 1925, the mission reported a European staff of 77 a native staff of 1,120, not including one, 551 teachers, a Christian community of 58,861, 770 to schools, 43,490 to primary and middle school pupils, besides 126 college and high school students. One member of the original band, Dr. Laws, still remains at his post. Few living men have witnessed such changes as he has seen in the life of a people. They are so great and have come so rapidly that the younger generation know nothing of what things were like in their father's days. When the Livingstone film was shown in Blanchard last year, with its realistic pictures of slave raiding, of the burning of villages, of the long lines of victims marching with yokes on their necks, it all seemed as remote to them as it did to English people. Only a few were old enough to remember the horrors of those days. The Nyasalin Mission of the Church of Scotland reports over 15,000 baptized Christians 
and 300 schools with 15,000 scholars. The story of the penetration of Africa by Christian missions cannot be continued further in these pages. The progress made is remarkable. In 1876, Christian missions had more or less occupied South Africa. In North Africa, practically nothing had been done to win the Muslim population. The North African mission was not started till 1876. Along the West Coast, from the Gambia to the Congo, Anglicans, Methodists, Presbyterians, Lutherans, and Baptists were at work. The primitive Methodists had succeeded the Baptists on the island of Fernando Po in 1870. None of the missions had penetrated far into the interior. The Christianization of the continent can hardly be said to have begun 50 years ago. The progress that these years have witnessed is so great that Sir Harry Johnston, one of the greatest living authorities on Africa, is justified in saying, before long, so energetic are the missionaries, the whole of Central Africa will have been Christianized, excepting along the East Coast where the Arab influence is too strong to be approved. Testimony to this remarkable advance is borne by the records of Bible translation in Africa. In 1876, some portion of Holy Scripture had been translated into 50 of the languages. To be exact, the whole Bible into seven, the New Testament into nine others, some book of scripture or books into 23 and selected passages into 11 more. In 1926, translations have grown to 244, of which 180 appear on the British and foreign Bible societies list. The figure is made up as follows, 28 complete versions of the Bible and 59 New Testaments, some book or books in 138 other languages and selected passages in 19 more. That is to say, 194 translations have been issued since 1876. During the last 50 years, an average of nearly four new versions has been published every 12 months. An astonishing result when it is remembered that the existence of most of these languages was unknown in 1876. Moreover, an examination of the list in 1876 reveals the fact that, as might be expected, the languages in which translations had been made were almost entirely spoken in the coastal region. Languages of the far interior were absent from the list. Now every part of the continent is represented. This extension of Christianity is not the least significant of the points of contrast between 1876 and 1926. Thanks for joining me for this reading. Click the link on the screen to access the next chapter. Thank you for joining me for the reading of chapter 4 of The Golden Stool. This is a necessary reading for any African American who considers themselves to be a Christian. In The Golden Stool, the author, a Christian evangelist Edwin Smith, explicitly details how Christianity is the tool that was used to colonize Africa, murdering millions of innocent men, women, and children in the process. We must free ourselves from our ancestors' oppressors' doctrine and remember who we were before the Europeans invaded Africa. It was once said that if you want to keep some information from a black person, all you have to do is put it in a book. Well, thanks to QuellyCush.com, that can no longer be said. We read a book for you every single day. All you have to do is listen. So be sure to subscribe so you can join us on this journey to knowledge of self. Now for today's reading of Chapter 4, wherein an attempt is made to estimate the Africans' worth. Unfortunately, no record is available of what the Africans thought concerning the first white men who arrived on their coast to carry them into slavery. It is known, however, that in other parts of Africa the natives regarded the earliest European visitors as supernatural beings. Their appearance was looked upon as a portent. There was a pretty general fear that disease and death would follow, says Dr. Bentley of his arrival in Congolin. The fears of the Negroes pictured Mungo Park in the flowing robes of a tremendous spirit, 
One of them said that when the white man appeared, a cold blast of wind poured down upon himself from the sky, like so much water. When natives of Nyasaland first saw a steamer on the lake, they were terror-stricken and said, it is God. He walks on the water. When they beheld the white skin of the man who landed, they said, it is surely God. He has come to us in the likeness of men. When he ate soppy bananas in their presence, they said, no, not God, but a friend of his. It is widely believed that white men come out of the sea. This has been said in my presence in the far interior by men who had never seen the sea. Their wonderful possessions are supposed to have been picked up on the ocean shore or on the ocean bed so easily obtained, so niggardly imparted. Some even think a curious reminiscence of slavery days that they compel the spirits of black men to manufacture these things for them beneath the sea or under the earth, and that ten meats are really the flesh of those black captives. The white man is considered a magician of very extraordinary gifts. Probably few Europeans who travel in Central Africa escape from having the power attributed to them of making or of withholding rain. Everything about them is wonderful, uncanny. In some districts, the European's white skin is taken as proof of his favor with the Creator. For white is the African's emblem of happiness and blessedness, as black is their emblem of sadness and misfortune. So is built up the white man's prestige, and it is upon this, rather than upon actual force, that his power chiefly rests. There is always a machine gun in the background, of course, but it is not this that counts most. Apart from the sentry at the district gal, and except at the capital, which was also the headquarters of the native police, I very rarely saw an armed policeman in northern Rhodesia. The whole of Nigeria, an area equal to that of Germany, Holland, Belgium, and two-thirds of France, with over 18 million inhabitants, is governed with the aid of 2,500 African troops, officered by white men and the political officers average only one to every 70,000 Africans. This prestige is not based solely upon a reputation for thaumaturgy, though for long years the African may retain an uneasy sense of the European's magic. He does at last discover him to be a man like unto himself. It is commonly believed that he admires and respects brute strength above all else, but a study of his folk tales proves the contrary. He is a very shrewd judge of men, the profound esteem with which David Livingstone was regarded and the reverence in which his name is still held by those who remember him, should in itself be sufficient to show that the African recognizes and appreciates nobility of character. He may, and in many instances he does, begin by crediting the European with magical power, but in the long run it is such virtues as kindliness, humanity, courage, justice, truthfulness, cheerfulness, that he looks for and admires. It is a circumstance of great value to their successors that, over a vast area, the first Europeans exhibited those virtues in an eminent degree. It comes as a shock to the African to discover that white men are not all immaculates. He quickly loses respect for them when they fall below the standard he has set up. It is to be feared that over a large part of Africa they are not respected as they were. Let it be repeated, says Mr. D.K. McKenzie. To the younger generation, the white man is no longer a little tin god, or any other kind of god. Instead of regarding him with awe as a supernatural being, as their fathers did, they made fun of him. Young Africans are terrible mimics, and in hundreds of villages today the white man and his ways form the subject of acted comedies. To laugh at a man is of course compatible with respect and affection, and these comedies are not in themselves proof that Europeans are no longer reverent. But they do mean that Europeans are discovered to be human and as such must prove themselves worthy of respect. That the war has lowered the white man's prestige is the testimony of many observers. The effect of the war upon the native was in almost every way most unfortunate, quite apart from the loss of life and damage to property, writes Major or Brown. It is true 
that he gained an enormously increased respect for the power and resources of the mysterious European, which must serve as a great deterrent to any idea of armed movements. But against that advantage must be set the effect upon the native mind of seeing the previously all-wise European embark upon a bitter and prolonged war of an extent and duration utterly beyond African experience. To the more intelligent such a revelation must have had a marked effect in making them doubtful whether the white man's ways were really preferable to their own. Of necessity, in a campaign very many ugly things have to be done, while the stripping off of many of the restraints of civilized life left the ruling race only to often in a most unprepossessing light. D.K. McKenzie, The Spirit-Ridden Con, P159. This estimate is confirmed by another experienced East African official, Mr. C.W. Hobley, who writes, The black troops soon came to realize the physical disabilities of the Europeans and their vulnerability. They saw Europeans shot down and even bayoneted by enemy black soldiers. They realized that very few Europeans were crack shots. They noted the inferior marching capacity of the white man, his inability to find his way about in the bush unaccompanied by a native guide. And in some cases, they even saw that the courage of the white was not greater than that of the black. After all, please, can it be wondered that the prestige of the white race has suffered in the war? Is it surprising that the attitude of many of the blacks to the white man has altered? Mr. Hobley adds, it is doubtful if the old traditional wide respect of white by black can ever be entirely restored. Apart from the effects of the war, a very serious aspect of the subject must be reckoned with. Large numbers of Africans have undoubtedly, and not without reason, come to question the white man's equity. Some writers exaggerate the extent to which, largely under the stimulus of certain Afro-American agitators, the national sentiment has arisen. With its cry Africa for the Africans, but undoubtedly it exists in some quarters, and it feeds upon every instance of the white man's injustice and cruelty. The Europeans' reputation is at stake. By all ye cry or whisper, by all ye leave or do the silent, sullen peoples. Shall weigh your gods, and you, Lord Bryce demonstrated that race sentiment is a comparatively recent growth. It emerged when peoples began to realize themselves as nations and came into contact and competition with others. It was not until modern times that Britons came into touch with Africans. In the Middle Ages, the strangest notions, coming down from Greek geographers, prevailed concerning them. Ethiopia was the blue man's land. And this land, wrote Bartholomew the Englishman in the 13th century, be many nations with diverse faces wonderly and horribly shapen. And other as troglodytes dig them dens and caves, and dwell in them instead of houses, and they catch serpents, and all that may be got. Their noise is more fearful in sounding than the voice of other. There be other that be called Benny, and it is said they have no heads, but they have eyes fixed in their breasts. And there be satyrs, and they have only shape of men, and have no manners of mankind. Other men of Ethiopia live only by honeysuckles dried in smoke, and in the sun, and these live not past forty years. Such were the ideas generally held when English men began to frequent the western shores of Africa. In what degree was Shakespeare's knowledge more accurate? He makes Othello tell Desdemona of the cannibals that each other cat, the anthropophagi, and men whose heads do grow beneath their shoulders. Desdemona was not alone in feeling the fascination of an opening world. That Elizabethans were intensely curious as to the peoples of the new lands we may gather from Trinculo, when they will not give a doit to relieve a lame beggar. They will lay out ten to see a dead Indian. Shakespeare took Othello, a black man, as the hero of his greatest tragedy, and perhaps none of his characters shows more supremely the mastery of his genius and of his power over the human heart. The Moor's blood is highly inflammable, but his nature is noble, confiding, tender, and generous, 
and shows up well against that of the detestable Lago, whom Shakespeare uses as a foil. Othello is thoroughly human. We pity him as he becomes entangled by circumstances. We do not hold him in contempt. If the prejudice against Kalur had emerged in Shakespeare's day, he did not share it. Indeed, it is more than likely that the Tempest voices his protest against the brutalities inflicted by the whites of his day upon the blacks. Here is perhaps the earliest treatment in English literature of the conflict of cultures in Africa. Trinculo and Stefano, who swear by the bottle, are of the type that has to frequently represent a European civilization. Caliban is the half-devil and half-child of the later Kipling. He embodies, perhaps, the Elizabethan conception of the African, a devil, a born devil, on whose nature nurture can never stick. But the penetrative insight of Shakespeare reveals that he too is human. He is gross, uncouth, wild, but as Hazlitt says, his figure acquires a classical dignity in comparison with the drunken sailors. Shakespeare shows him to be sensitive to the white man's injustice. When thou earnest first, thou strokest me and mad street much of me, and then I love thee and shoot thee all the qualities o' the eye. Cursed be I that I did so one. Here you stye me, and this hard rock, whiles you do keep from me, the rest o' the island. With a fidelity that excites our admiration, Shakespeare limbs in a few short words Caliban swift, and pathetic trust in the brave God. Hast thou not dropped from heaven? He is indeed a most ridiculous monster, to make a wonder of a poor drunkard. But, passionate like ourselves, he is not to be fooled all the time. He awakes at last to the true character of those men who have excited his wonder. What a thrice double ass was I, to take this drunkard for a god, and worship this dull fool. And if in this respect Shakespeare correctly reads the savage's mind, he is no less prophetic in his estimation of that spiritual faculty which enabled this poor clod to sense that the eye was full of noises, sounds, and sweet airs that give delight and hurt not. It is nothing short of marvelous that, at a time when the barbarian was so little known, Shakespeare should, while exaggerating his brutishness, have interpreted his soul so well. For a long period, the African has been looked upon as an inferior being, and even as subhuman. This finds frequent utterance. The Negro, says Mr. R.C.F. Markham, exists in the world for one end and for one end only, manual labor. Many men voice the intimate more tersely when they speak of the damn nigger. Even when not expressed, the disdain is to often apparent in the white man's attitude. If this contempt did not originate with the enslaving of the African, it was greatly reinforced by that traffic. On the whole, the European did not find it difficult to carry Negroes into slavery, and it was easy to argue from this fact that the African was a slave by nature. Today, the need for the labor of the black man forms the basis of the argument that the black man is fitted only for manual and menial toil. The slave trade inflicted a terrible wrong upon the Negro, and it requires little effort to hate a man whom you have wronged. Half of his worth doth Zeus the far-seeing take from a man when the day of slavery catcheth him, said Homer and to this day the feeling remains that a slave is only half a man, if so much. The contempt felt for slaves was by association extended to the whole African race. It became natural for the upholders of slavery to speak of the Africans in this way. Stupid and unenlightened hordes, immersed in the most gross and impenetrable gloom of barbarism, dark in mind as in body, prodigiously populous, impatient of all control, unteachably lazy, ferocious as their own congenial tigers, nor in any respect superior to these rapacious beasts in intellectual advancement, but distinguished only by a rude and imperfect organ of speech, which is abusively employed in the utterance of dissonant and inarticulate jargon. One, it must be remembered, too, that these men only knew Negro slaves, and there is this much truth in Homer's dictum. 
The slave loses the dignity and self-respect that he possessed as a freeman. The mentality of a slave is a characteristic quality. In the same way, men judge the African wrongly today when they see him out of his natural environment. In European townships and labor camps, and even in schools, he often suffers from what the psychologists call an inferiority complex, which makes him an unpleasant person. The color prejudice is not, I believe, instinctive. Here as elsewhere, I agree fully with Mr. J.H. Oldham. I had an African nurse and was surrounded by black folk in my youth. I cannot recall that their color ever aroused in me any repugnance. But it is unquestionable that the physical dissimilarities do account for much of the aversion that people feel for the African. The cold black faces and bodies, the odor, and the simian features to which Mr. Putnam will refers are taken by many Europeans as marks of the beast. Such terms, of course, are exaggerations for many Africans, though black or chocolate in color are decidedly good looking on coming back to England my own feeling was that on the average they were more handsome than English people. The odor is not always noticeable and Africans have told me that the odor of white people is unpleasant to them. A missionary's wife once declared confidently in my hearing that the black skin was a sign of God's curse on the African. Here the laws of association play a part. The Africans associate white with good fortune. We associate black with dirt, soot and the devil. Many good people find it difficult to believe that a man with a black skin can be other than black hearted. The dissimilarities between white and black do not stop at physical features. The ordinary traveler, ignorant of the language and constitutionally unfitted to see any good in un-British ways, is struck with the tremendous difference between the African's life and his own and can hardly help feeling the Africans to be inferior. It cannot be denied that closer acquaintance may, with more reason, deepen the impression. No small part of the unenlightened African's life is extremely repulsive to a decent European. The uncleanly habits, the infanticide, the lack of humanity, the sacrifice of human beings, and so on, only a rose-pink sentimentalism could be blind to such things. They do foster a sentiment of superiority in the white man. But it is well to recall that a decent Roman citizen probably had much the same feeling when he first came into contact with the early inhabitants of Britain. Those ferocious islanders. Tacitus calls them a fierce and savage people running wild in woods. We can see that while the Roman historian's judgment was true superficially, it erred in not taking all the facts into consideration. We know now that the prideful Roman was not essentially superior to the Britons whom he conquered, and it may be that history will in like manner correct hasty judgments pronounced upon the Africans. It would be easy to compile a long list of these superstitions about the Africans but reference to some recent statements will be sufficient as an illustration. Family responsibilities count not at all with the Bantu, says a semi-official handbook published in South Africa. The same publication repeats the hoary libel uttered at Nauzim at missionary meetings that the Africans purchased their wives. One statement is as false as the other. In Africa, writes the English wife of a French doctor, there are no hereditary beliefs, customs or rights such as would serve to keep the family together. Wives are bought daughters are sold, and it is only the money or exchange transaction which keeps the tie good. Their minds are empty of any sort of regious idea or conviction. The Congolese neither play talk nor vork. But the primitive blacks have acquired a complicated mentality where reason has no place. There is no need to enter here into a refutation of all these errors. The last mentioned, however, merits brief examination. A medical man who lived in South Africa for a short time has said that the brain of the black is different from the whites, not in degree of quality, but in kind. If the divergence were so great as he imagined, 
it would be difficult to understand how it is possible for the African to learn our language and for us to learn his. It is a common idea that the African's mind works so diversely from the Europeans that to think black is and must always remain an impossible achievement for the white. A school of anthropologists of which M. Levy Brawl is the chief spokesman claims to have discovered that primitive man is incapable of dispassion it and consistent observation is devoid of the power of abstraction, unable to draw any benefit from experience, and cannot construct or comprehend even the most elementary laws of nature. He is in a pre-logical stage of mentality. These conclusions have recently been controverted brilliantly by Dr. Malinowski, who shows that every primitive community is in possession of a considerable store of knowledge, based on experience and fashioned by reason. It cannot be denied that it is difficult for civilized men to understand the uncivilized. But that is not because the mind of the latter works differently from ours. Dr. McDougall is unquestionably right in saying that the interval between the modern man of scientific culture and the average citizen of our modern states is far greater than that between the latter and the savage. The English and Welsh countryside, says another scholar, preserved for those who have eyes to see them very many customs and prejudices which presuppose savage mentality. Which is to say that the difference between cultured Europeans and barbarian Africans is one of education, not of mental structure. It is a matter of disparity in dominant traditional ideas. The Africans, so far from lacking reasoning powers, are ruthless in their logic. Starting from the belief in the survival of the human personality, for example, they argue that a chief requires a retinue in the spirit world. And they reach the terrible conclusion that therefore men and women must be slain that they may accompany him. My experience leads me to confirm what Mr. Peter Nielsen, an experienced observer, has written. I have listened to thousands of old native men of many different tribes in my time. I have heard them speak their inmost thoughts, not through interpreters, whoever learned anything through an interpreter. I have studied these people in and out of court, officially and privately, in their crawls and in the veil during many years. And I say that I can find nothing whatever throughout the whole gamut of the native's conscious life and so to differentiate him from other human beings in other parts of the world. Perhaps the greatest mistake that is made in regard to the Africans is to argue from their actual achievement as a race to their natural ability as individuals. That is to say, because the Negroes have done so little as a race in the past, we infer a priori that the Negroes of today are defective mentally. That many Africans show remarkable capacity cannot be doubted. The Negro did not change his race when he was exported to America and his progress there since his emancipation from slavery has been truly astonishing. To give one instance only, a Negro who was born in slavery has achieved an international reputation by his researches in chemistry. In British, American and South African universities, African students have taken excellent degrees. A few years ago, a full blood Congo Negro was awarded the Goncourt Prize in Literature in competition with some of the leading writers of France. Many other examples might be given, but it will be sufficient to relate the following experience of a South African judge, Sir Thomas Graham. Speaking with his wide experience as a judge, he said that he had formed the definite conviction that there was no substantial difference in natural ability between the white and the black. At Port Elizabeth, a short time before he had tried an action arising out of a labor dispute in which the principal witness on one side was the native secretary of an organization representing 14,000 banter workers. This man was highly intelligent and gave his evidence with the utmost clearness and confidence. Though he had a large number of intricate figures and details to deal with, he never hesitated a moment or made a single mistake. After the trial, the judge called the man to him and ascertained that he came from Nyasaland. That alone 
added the judge, was a remarkable thing. A native coming down from Nyasaland and taking charge of an organization of colored and native people in South Africa. And this man had been educated from a state of semi-savagery in a single generation. It may be objected that Africans who have shown such outstanding ability are so few in number that one cannot argue from these particular instances. Yet that some Africans have climbed so high surely proves that the mere fact of a pure African ancestry is not of necessity a bar to mental and cultural advance. Apparent racial inferiority may be due, not to a permanent organic disability, but to relatively superficial factors such as social inheritance and lack of opportunity. One must remember the very short time that the advantages of education have been offered to the Africans. And the fact must not be overlooked that in the past uneducated native chiefs and others have shown very remarkable ability. Whatever may be said of them in other respects, such men as Mashish, Sebetwain, Sidi, Kama, Chaka, Labangula, and Luanika certainly did not lack in intellectual power. Of Luanika, I was told by a British administrator that, all things considered, there was no abler diplomat in Europe. Why then have the Africans never developed a higher civilization? The Negroes have no chapter in the history of the planet, says M. Lewis Vignan. Mr. Putnam will says that the Asiatic has contributed immensely to the civilization of the world, has founded every great religion that exists, not so the black man. He is the child of nature, the one untutored man who was a helot in the days of Solomon, as he is still a virtual slave. Such writers imply that the world owes nothing to the African and never will owe anything to him. This exaggerated statement must not be allowed to pass unchallenged. Eminent authorities like Sir James Fraser are coming to the conclusion that European culture owes more to the Africans than has yet been acknowledged. It is highly probable that Africans discovered the process of smelting iron. In many regions of the continent, a civilization of a relatively high character had been developed before the Europeans came, and apart from Islamic influence, civilization quite as high as the Romans found in Britain. Yet it must be conceded that as a whole, the Africans never progressed very far. They never for example, invented a system of writing. Why is it? To this various answers may be given, such as the deadening effect of disease carried by insects. If, as has been alleged, the mosquito was one cause of the degeneration of the Greeks, may it not also have been a factor, coming at an early stage and hindering the further evolution of the African. But perhaps the chief reason was that the conformation of the African continent has always made intercourse with the outside world difficult. History proves that peoples advance under external stimulus and stagnate when that stimulus ceases to operate. Peoples do not rise independently to a high degree of culture. Civilization is a plant much oftener propagated than developed. Our British culture is an outstanding example. In a previous chapter, allusion was made to the invasions of white peoples in Africa. Unquestionably, these did stimulate the Negro race to a limited degree. But the stimulus was not continuous and when it ceased the Negro and even the Negroid who had absorbed foreign blood sank into stagnation again. Many of the Africans were never affected by this stream from abroad, and others only to an infinitesimal extent. This in itself is sufficient to account for the position in which the Africans were found by Europeans. And there is the further fact that for thousands of years they have been oppressed by various fears and psychologists make clear how these phobias may adversely affect the whole life of the people. But we must not commit the error of inferring from their past and present state that the Africans have no capacity to advance. The limits of a people's power of adaptation and of progress cannot be determined from any consideration of their history before the stimulus to adaptation occurred. One under the new conditions of real awakening of mind, a definite nascence, is taking place.
and the advance made by so many individual Africans under European guidance may be taken as a promise of greater things to come. General Mangan, the famous French commander of African troops, bears this testimony. The Negro is probably as competent as the white man to handle the scientific instruments of civilization. I do not deny that he has still to be educated. What I do maintain is that he has qualities of head and heart which are not to be treated as negligible. He is by nature good and faithful and endowed with a sense of honor. And if he is really given the chance, he will reach a high level. There is an alight in the black world capable of excelling in all regions of human intelligence. In earlier days, there was some excuse for despising the African. Europeans were necessarily ignorant of his languages, and they had not studied the social customs and beliefs. Jean-Jacques Rousseau, writing in 1754, said the whole of Africa and its numerous inhabitants, singular alike in their character and in their color, have still to be examined. All the land is covered with peoples of whom we know nothing but their names, and yet we presume to judge concerning the human race. We remember how John Morley describes the way in which people of the IX century talked of von Natur. One who had watched bees or beetles for years could not give us a more full or confident account of their doings. In the absence of facts, philosophic conjectures took their place. The inductive method is now applied to the study of man. And one of the distinguishing features of the last 50 years has been an industrious, painstaking collection of the facts concerning the African. And this study missionaries and government officials have taken the leading share. There remains a great amount to be done, but today we know the Africans as our fathers did not know them. And the hopeful thing is that the more we have come to know about them, the more we have learned to respect them. We have discovered to be true of them what Rousseau predicted falsely would be discovered about the gorillas and orangutans whose existence had been reported in his time. He said that they would prove neither huge neither deal, match their harms. Never before, it may be safely said, were there so many people convinced of the real worth of the African, not as a labor, but as a man. And that conviction is based not upon sentimental considerations, but upon actual knowledge. Less Canada says, less Aimer, truly says Mr. Torde. It is no accident that the post-war period has witnessed a greater interest in Africa and the Africans. The loyalty and generosity of the natives during that conflict struck deep into the hearts of the British people. While the war diminished in some degree the prestige of the whites, it enhanced the prestige of the blacks. Men who fought with and against African troops were loud in their praises. As far as actual fighting is concerned, say one distinguished English general, the West Africans would be lit to fight alongside any troops in the world, just as good as the best Indian soldier when properly trained and officered, said another. It is the way of the British soldier to admire Bonnie fighters whatever side they may be on, as Kipling recorded after the Sudan campaign. And ears to you, fuzzy wuzzy, with your Eric Eid of air, you big black bounding beggar, for you broke a British square one. So men came back from the war with a new respect for the African and a determination to see justice done to him. East may be east, and west, west. But there is neither east, nor west, border, nor breed, nor birth, when Volvo strong men stand face to face, though they come from the ends of the earth. Captain W.D. Downs, with the Nigerians in German East Africa, pp. 288-289. The empire owes more recognition than has up to date been given to the Negro soldier for all that Ho has had to endure, and all the appalling hard. Ships in East Africa and the Cameroons he has gone through for the sake of the empire. Their deeds have not been done in the limelight and the public have heard very little of their doings. But, my reader, they have fought and conquered, suffered and died for the British Empire. I sincerely hope that all the Negro has done for the British race will not be forgotten.
and that the welfare of the African would be one of Britain's first considerations after the war. Some of those who had to do with the Carrier Corps had the same feeling. Mr. F. H. Mellon, after giving the figures already quoted P. 68 footnote writes, Perhaps the reader will now understand a little why we are rather proud of our natives, and one reason why we would like to do a little more for them, which we cannot do unless the people at home will take some interest in them. On their war record alone, they seem to have earned their interest. In which bound Africa? P27. The new attitude is one of respect rather than pity. Pity for what old missionaries called the perishing progeny of Ham comes at times perilously near contempt. Respect means that we honor whatsoever there is of good in the African's life and that we desire to help him to make that good better, not by supplanting it with an entirely exotic culture, but by stimulating him to develop his culture according to his own genius. This new attitude of respect underlies Article 22 of the Covenant of the League of Nations, which is rightly considered the black man's Magna Carta. It reads, to those colonies and territories which as a consequence of the late war have ceased to be under the sovereignty of the states which formerly governed them and which are inhabited by peoples not yet able to stand by themselves under the strenuous conditions of the modern world. There should be applied the principle that the well-being and development of such peoples form a sacred trust of civilization, and that securities for the performance of this trust should be embodied in this covenant. This article, to use Burke's words about another document, provides a real charter of security for the rights of man. True, at first sight it does not bear the significance here attributed to it. But to say not yet able to stand by themselves implies the conviction that someday they will be able to stand by themselves, that they possess qualities which can be developed under sympathetic guidance to a high level. It is true, again, that the article refers specifically only to the territory surrendered by Germany. But the principle of trusteeship here laid down is of universal application, and the British government has definitely extended it to embrace all its African dependencies. In 1923 it said, as in the Uganda Protectorate, so in the Kenya colony, the principle of trusteeship for the natives, no less than in the mandated territory of Tangent through Yuka, is unassailable. The Memorandum of the Advisory Committee on Education, accepted in 1925 as a statement of government policy, draws no distinction between West and East Africa in referring to the responsibility of the controlling power as trustee for the moral advancement of the native population. These official documents contain a progressive definition of trusteeship and advance from well-being and development and protection and advancement to moral advancement. The report of the East Africa Commission recognizes that the status of trusteeship imposes upon the trustee a moral duty and a moral attitude. This represents a wonderful progress from the time when the exploitation of the African in the form of slavery was the dominant purpose of Britain. It is a triumph of Christian principle in the realm of high national policy. It looks upon the African as primarily a man, not a labor. He is a ward whose guardians pledge themselves to care for and educate, imparting to him what they possess to the full extent of his present capacity to receive, and looking to the future when he will be able to manage his own affairs. Once adopted, such a principle can never be abandoned for a less worthy ideal. Trusteeship involves a duty that is not limited to agents of the imperial government and to missionaries, as the East Africa Commission declare. It lies really upon the shoulders of every man and woman of European race in Africa. Every action of Europeans in Africa must be tested by this principle as a touchstone. Respect for the African's manhood involves the adoption of what Sir Frederick Luger, in off-quoted words, calls the true conception of the interrelation of Kalur. Complete uniformity in ideals, absolute equality in the paths of knowledge and culture, equal opportunity for those who strive, equal admiration for those who achieve, 
and matters social and racial a separate path, each pursuing his own inherited traditions, preserving his own race purity and race pride, equality in things spiritual, agreed divergence in the physical and material. This is the attitude adopted throughout this book. It is a position far removed alike from that taken by the damn nigger people and from that of a certain writer who seems to think that Pope Gregory's non-angly said on Gilly was a declaration of the Almighty, and who declares the evangelization of the world can only come about as a result of the evangelization of the world. The African is being cut away from his old moorings. Contact with Western civilization makes it forever impossible that he should remain as he is, or get back again to where he was. But he is not to be regarded as a European who happens to be born with a black skin. It must be frankly recognized that he possesses aptitudes and traditions which, though they may differ from those of Europeans, are still worth conserving. The Africans must be enabled to build something new upon the sound elements in their individual character and social system. For its enrichment, humanity needs not black Europeans, but Africans true to their racial ethos. What Robert Bridges writes of nations of advanced culture is true also in a measure of Africans. Kleena and Ein, Hellas or Franco each hath its inheritance, and each to truth's rich market brings its bright divine imaginings, and rival tribute to surprise, the world with native merchandise. This concludes chapter four of the Golden Stool. Click the box on the screen to listen to the next chapter. See you there. Hey, did you know Amazon had a website for black businesses? That's right, blackownedamazon.com. If you're black, show you're black. Shop black. Every single product on blackownedamazon.com is from a black-owned business. And not only that, when you buy from blackownedamazon.com, Amazon will donate a portion of your total purchase to assist new black-owned businesses. So if you're black, show you're black. Shop black. Blackownedamazon.com. Be sure to bookmark this website so that you never forget to shop at blackownedamazon.com.